I want to invite you to imagine with me for just a moment. You are in Egypt. You're a slave. You've got a pickaxe in your hands. The hot Egyptian sun is baking on your back. You are mining for sand and for rock. And then there's a crack of the whip. It hits you in your back. The foreman yells, faster. You gather what you have mined. You carry it up a hill. It happens again. Crack. The foreman hits you with the whip, bottom of your hips. Faster, he says. This is your life. Every day. This is exactly what you're father did and your grandfather and his father before him. For 400 years, your people have been in Egypt as slaves, receiving beatings, sufferings. The Pharaoh who's in charge of the nation has no idea about your ancestor, Joseph. This Joseph who came and not only saved his family, but the entire nation of Egypt from starvation. This is your life. This is where you live. And you begin crying out to God, God, would you save us? Would you rescue us? We're tired of the beatings. We're tired of the sufferings. We want freedom. And so God answers your prayer. He raises up a savior. He raises up a deliverer whose name is Moses. Moses goes to Pharaoh and says, God says, let his people go. Pharaoh says, by no means will that happen. And guess what? Because you said that, your people now have to work harder. Well, Moses is now in a position in which not only is Pharaoh angry at him, And the Egyptians are angry at him, but now the Israelites are mad at him. Moses goes to God and says, God, I did everything you told me to do, and now everybody's mad at me. Exodus chapter 6, verse 1, now you're about to see my power. God stacks the deck against Moses so that he alone, God alone, will get the glory. And so the Lord says, get my people ready. God sends 10 acts of judgment, 10 plagues upon the nation of Israel. The last one, the 10th one, is the worst. The death of the firstborn son of everyone in Egypt. But God had a plan for his people. He made a promise that if his people would sacrifice a lamb, and paint the blood of the lamb on the doorposts, his people would be rescued. The angel of death would pass over their homes. The night that all of this would happen, God told his people to prepare a meal, a Passover meal, something that they would do every year to mark the occasion. Well, that night has come. Preparations have been made. The doorposts have been painted with the blood of a lamb. The family sits down to feast and to celebrate. 
Meal is over. They discard all of the belongings that Moses had told them to do just in a certain way. And then they wait. And around midnight, you hear screaming out in the distance. You hear crying and wailing just down the street. You look at your firstborn son, and he embraces you. Warm tears come flowing down your cheek. Your family has been rescued. Your family has been saved. This is the night that God rescued your family through the blood of a lamb. Well, this meal, this Passover meal, is so significant that it is something that God would point his people backwards to continually remember his faithfulness. But this meal is not just pointing backwards to something, but pointing forwards to someone. And that is where we pick up in Mark 14. Let me show you. Grab your Bible and turn with me to Mark chapter 14. As a faith family, we're walking through this rich gospel in a sermon series called On the Move. We are seeing Jesus on the move throughout this incredibly fast-paced, hard-hitting gospel. Mark 14, Jesus is now in Jerusalem. He is one day away from going to the cross to die for the sins of the world. He has just eaten a meal in Bethany the night before where he was anointed with an expensive perfume. Now, after rebuking Judas Iscariot for his evil and fleshly outburst, Judas Iscariot leaves the meal and goes to betray Jesus to the chief priest for 30 pieces of silver. Now we pick up here in Mark chapter 14, beginning with verse 12. On the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples asked him, where do you want us to go and prepare the Passover so that you may eat it? So he sent two of his disciples and told them, go into the city and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. Wherever he enters, tell the owner of the house. The teacher says, where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large room upstairs furnished and ready. Make the preparations for us there. So the disciples went out, entered the city, and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. When evening came, he arrived with the twelve. While they were reclining and eating, Jesus said, Truly I tell you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be distressed and to say to him one by one, Surely not I. He said to them, It is one of the twelve the one who is dipping bread in the bowl with me. For the Son of Man will go just as it is written about him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for him if he had not been born. As they were eating, he took bread, blessed and broke it, gave it to them and said, take it, this is my body. Then he took a cup and after giving thanks, he gave it to them and they all drank from it. He said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly, I tell you, I will no longer drink of the cup of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. 
After singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. The time has come for Jesus to eat this one last meal with his disciples before his suffering and crucifixion. And it's at this meal that Jesus predicts his coming betrayal. He teaches his disciples the true meaning of the Passover. And he introduces the Lord's Supper to the next. How God designed the Lord's Supper. And he designed it to point his people to, number one, look inward to look inward. Jesus and his disciples, they go to the upper room where the Passover meal has been prepared. John tells us that the two disciples who went and prepared the meal are Peter and John. Evening approaches and it's time to eat the Passover meal together. They sit down, pray a blessing on the meal. They begin to drink, feast and fellowship until Jesus drops a bombshell on everybody. Verse 18, truly I tell you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. Verse 18 changes the mood of the entire meal. Jesus' declaration, it brought shock to the disciples. It broke their hearts. Verse 19, they began to be distressed. They were saddened. They were grieved that someone would betray Jesus. But I want you to notice in the text that Jesus' statement, it leads to the, the disciples' self-examination. One by one, including Judas, they denied that they would betray Jesus. None of them considered themselves to be a Benedict Arnold. Surely it can't be me. Perplexed, each of the disciples are now examining their hearts and they're wondering aloud, is, is it me? Am, am I the one who's going to betray Jesus? His statement, it compels each of the disciples to examine their hearts to wonder, am I going to betray him? Am I going to walk away? Do I really believe in him? These are good questions that everyone needs to ask of themselves. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5, he says, examine yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you unless you fail the test? You see, it is good and right as a follower of Jesus to examine your heart, to see, do I really believe this stuff? Am I an authentic follower of Christ? Do I believe the gospel? You examine yourself. You test your faith to say, do I really believe what I'm claiming to believe? Here's the big question. Do you know Jesus personally? Do you know Jesus personally? Not do you know about Jesus. Judas knew all about Jesus. He spent a lot of time with Jesus, eating meals and seeing his miracles. He got a front row seat to see all the power of God through the Son of God. And yet he is one who rejects Jesus, refuses to submit to his authority. Question, what about you? Do you personally know Jesus? If not today, turn from your sin and put your faith in Christ. Surrender your life to Jesus and say, you can have my heart and my life. I'm banking my soul upon you. When Christy and I first got married, I got a job as a bank teller. 
And one of the ways I was trying to provide for my family was to work as an intern at a church doing student ministry stuff. I was going to seminary and a new wife and I worked at this bank. And one day a guy walks into a bank with a big sombrero, a big fake beard, and he's yelling and cursing at everybody. He takes a briefcase and says, fill it up. And after I wet my pants, I grab the briefcase, I fill it up with money and I give it back to him. And what did I do? Hands up international sign of surrender. I was saying, hey, bro, I'm not a threat to you. I'm not going to fight you. And as it was happening, I was thinking to myself, this is going to be a great sermon illustration one day. (laughs) You see, this right here is the posture of the heart that God is after, where you surrender your life completely to him. Your hands are empty. You're not clinging to the things of this world. You don't count your life as precious to yourself. You say, Jesus, you're more important than me. You're more important than my stuff. You're more important than my people. You are everything to me, and I'm giving you my heart and my life. I am surrendering to you. But you know what's great? The one that you're surrendering to is not a bank robber. It's the one who made you and loves you and sent his son to die for you. And this is the posture that God is after for you. Question, do you know Jesus personally? If not, surrender your heart to him. If you are in Christ, then the Lord's Supper is a time in which you self-examine. You look inward. You examine your faith to say, do I really believe this stuff? We see a great example of this in the church at Corinth. Now, Corinth was a beautiful mess, This church, it had all kinds of issues. It was beautiful because Jesus loved the church, but it was a mess because they had all kinds of issues. They looked more like the world than they looked like Jesus. What's interesting, you read the book of of 1 Corinthians, man, they didn't believe in the resurrection. They were boasting in their spiritual gifts. People who were getting drunk on the Lord's Supper, they were taking each other to court and suing each other. It was just a hot mess. And so Paul writes this letter to correct all kinds of issues facing the church. Well, in chapter 11, he does address the Lord's Supper. And he says, you wealthy, you guys are feasting, okay? You guys are acting like it's Thanksgiving Day. Meanwhile, those who are poor in the church are coming to the Lord's Supper hungry. And you rich, you're even getting drunk on the Lord's Supper's wine. So he's rebuking them. But here's what he tells them in in 1 Corinthians 11.28. Let a person examine himself. In this way, let him eat the bread and drink from the cup. You see, the Lord's Supper is a time to examine your heart. Let Jesus' statement in verse 18 be a wake-up call to your soul. Will you betray Christ? Are you going to walk away? Are you going to say, I don't know him? Or are you going to remain? Are you going to stay? Are you going to be faithful even when it costs you? You see, when we take the Lord's Supper together as a faith family, it's time for self-examination. It's time to confess sin. It's time to repent of sin, to say, Lord, would you clean my heart? Would you restore fellowship with me? Sadly, this meal revealed that Judas's coming condemnation was upon him. As each of the disciples are self-examining, Peter asked Jesus, John 13, 25, who is it? Who's going to betray you, Jesus? Jesus says, it's one of the 12. Who's going to be dipping bread in the bowl with me? Listen to John 13, 26. 
When he had dipped the bread, he gave it to Judas, Simon Iscariot's son. After Judas ate the piece of bread, Satan entered him. So Jesus told him, what you're doing, do quickly. Even as he is being betrayed by Jesus, by, by Judas, Jesus is in full control. He is commanding Satan, who has entered into Judas, what he is supposed to do. Jesus is still sovereign over Satan. Jesus is still sovereign over the situation. So Judas leaves. He goes to make final arrangements for Jesus' arrest. Now, this betrayal, it catches the disciples completely off guard. They didn't see it coming, which is a warning. It's a warning. The disciples, they saw Judas. They lived with him. They traveled with him. They ate with him. And they didn't see it coming. Him? He's betraying you? That's a warning. You see, wheat and tares look very similar. Wheat and tares on the outside can look almost the exact same. The difference between wheat and a tare, wheat has seed inside of it. As followers of Jesus, if you are in Christ, how you know you are not a tear is that you have Jesus inside. A mark that you are in Christ is you have Christ. He abides and lives inside of you forever. Well, here is Judas, a tear, rising up, growing up right alongside the disciples, and they didn't see it coming. But Jesus did. He knew what was coming. His act of treason, it was already predicted and prophesied in the Old Testament. We see imagery of Judas's betrayal in King David's advisor, a man named Ahathophel. When David's son, Absalom, tried to take his dad's crown, we see where David had an advisor named Ahathophel who leaves King David and he goes to Absalom. He says, Absalom, I'm on your team now. I'm leaving your dad and I'm with you. All of a sudden, Absalom is no longer, the opportunity has taken away that he can't be king anymore. And David's still king. And Ahathophel realized, rut-row, I walked away from the true king. I abandoned the true king. I betrayed the true king. What does he do? Well, according to 2 Samuel 17, he goes to his hometown and he hangs himself. Sound familiar? You see, Jesus is betrayed by Judas. The true king is betrayed. Psalm 41, verse 9, David wrote about this moment with Ahathophel. He says, even my friend in whom I trusted, one who ate my bread, has raised his heel against me. Ahathophel was a type of Judas who betrays the true king. And Judas, as we see in Matthew, will go and hang himself. Jesus says, verse 21, for the son of man will go just as it is written about him. But woe to that man by whom the son of man is betrayed. It would have been better for him if he had not been born. Notice how Jesus places full responsibility upon Judas for his betrayal. Though it was prophesied hundred years in advance, Judas's rejection of Jesus puts human responsibility squarely upon his shoulders. Judas is accountable before God for his actions. 
Now feel the weight of verse 21. Jesus is pointing to the reality and the horror of hell. It would have been better if he had never been born than to reject Jesus. I like how Warren Wiersbe said it. He says, if you have never been born again, one day you will wish that you had not been born at all. If you've not been born again, please hear me today. Repent and trust in Christ. I plead with you, please, turn from your life of sin. Turn from your pride. Turn from your selfishness. Turn from living for yourself and say, Lord, I want to repent. I want to turn away from my old life. And Jesus, I'm trusting in you. I believe in what you did for me at the cross. I'm trusting that what you did for me at the cross, that was for my sin. And I'm giving you my heart, I'm giving you my life, and I'm now following you for the rest of my life. Please, do not delay on that decision. Cry out to him and he will receive you. Jesus will welcome you like the father in Luke 15 who runs out and welcomes his son home. God will receive you when you cry out to him in faith through Jesus. This is the invitation. You see, rejecting Jesus carries with it the eternal consequence of hell. That's what Jesus is saying here. This is not man's opinion. This is the son of God going on record of what happens to those who reject him. Don't reject Jesus. Receive him. Trust in him. Your eternity is at stake. Don't go after the fleeting pleasures of sin that are here today and gone tomorrow. Run to the one who will satisfy your soul forever. The one who gave his life so that in him you can be forgiven forever. Examine yourself. Are you in Christ? Condemnation awaits those who do not repent and trust in Jesus. So as we take the Lord's Supper here in a few minutes, this is a time to look inward, to examine yourself. But also, I want you to see, number two, that it's a time to look backward. It's a time to look backward. For Jews, Passover was an annual meal that looked backwards in the history of Israel. It was a time to remember when divine justice would fall upon everyone. Either justice fell upon the firstborn or upon a substitute, the lamb. In every home, there would either be a dead child or a dead lamb. Either judgment came upon the family or the family took shelter under the blood of the lamb. You were saved only through faith in the substitutionary sacrifice. It is only through something taking your place a substitute, only through a sacrifice, one whose blood would be shed on your behalf. You see, Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Justice fell upon him at the cross. You see, Jesus is the one who is the substitutionary sacrifice whom you are saved from God's judgment. And Jesus is here taking the Passover meal and he is applying it to himself. He's saying, hey guys, this meal, it's pointing to me. 
This Passover meal is fulfilled in me. What was happening in Egypt thousands of years ago was pointing forward to me. And then Jesus takes the Passover meal and it melts away. I like how Spurgeon says that. It melts away and he institutes a brand new meal, the Lord's Supper. This new meal, this new ordinance that his church throughout the ages would regularly practice to remember who he is and what he has done for us in the gospel. Okay, so what does this consist of? Well, he tells us. We see Jesus' broken body. It's seen in the bread. In the meal, Jesus breaks away from the script of what's been retold for generations, and he shows them the bread and says, this is my body. Okay, what's Jesus doing here? He's holding up the bread that was symbolic of the bread of affliction, which the people ate in the wilderness. And he's saying, this bread is my body, meaning I am about to be the bread of affliction. I'm about to eat the bread of affliction. I am going to the cross. I am about to experience ultimate affliction so that you can experience ultimate exodus. I've got to experience something so horrible and tragic. I'm eating it. I'm taking it for you so that you don't have to. I'm going to bring you ultimate deliverance from slavery to sin and death. And it's going to be done through my broken body. But then he says, it's not just his broken body. He says through shed blood, the cup. Jesus then took the cup of wine, which represented his shed blood. and says, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Now remember, under the old covenant, the forgiveness of sins was provided through the shedding of blood of an animal. Remember Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. But the sacrifices had to be continually offered over and over and over again. Thousands upon thousands of animals were slain. Why? They were insufficient. They were not enough to pay for the sins of the people. The sacrifices weren't adequate to atone for the sins of the world. Hebrews 10.4 says, It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. But Jesus, through his perfect, sinless, shed blood, he made the perfect once and for all sacrifice. Hebrews 7.27 says, He doesn't need to offer sacrifices every day as high priests do, first for their own sins, then for those of the people. He did this once for all time when he offered himself. You see, Christ suffered once for all, the just for the unjust, that he might bring you to God. At the cross, Jesus fulfilled the old covenant through the shedding of his blood. And then he establishes a new covenant between God and man. You see, animal sacrifices are no longer necessary. There's no need for a temple for animals to be sacrificed, for their blood to be shed. Why? Because the high priest, the perfect sacrifice, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, Jesus gave a perfect sacrifice at the cross. It means that all of your sins, past, present, and future, gone. Washed in the blood of the lamb. 
atoned for perfectly through the work of Jesus. The cross is where God goes on record to show you how much he loves you. And it's through the cross that Jesus gives his life for you. He dies in your place so that you don't have to. He drinks the cup of God's wrath so that you don't have to. Through his shed blood, he makes a way so that you don't have to bask or live in your sin anymore. He makes a way for you. This is your God, the one who humbles himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus has given his body for us. He's given his blood for us. Why? Because he loves his father. And he obeys his father. And he loves you. And he cares for you. And as an act of worship, as a fragrant offering, as a sacrifice, he goes to the cross for you. His his blood is shed for you. So when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we're basking. We're celebrating the finished work of Jesus for us. The once and for all death, all that needed to be taken care of was taken care of by Jesus. And so as we eat and drink, it's not just, just home, like, uh, What's what we're looking for? It's not just this inner turmoil of woe is me. It's wow, look at him. It's a celebration. We look inward. We repent. We confess sin. We look backward. But we see we no longer look backward at the Passover in Egypt. Rather, we look backward at the greatest Passover that happened at Calvary. Because of Jesus, God has passed over our sin. For Jesus is the true Passover lamb who gave his life for us. And just as Jesus and the disciples are looking backwards to the Exodus event in just a moment, we're going to be looking backwards to the greater Exodus from sin and death that's ours through the gospel. Thirdly, what I want you to see here in the text is we don't just look inward and backward. We also look forward. Jesus offers his disciples hope. After telling them, hey, when y'all are gonna betray me, look at the hope he gives them there in verse 25. Truly I tell you, I will no longer drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Jesus is anticipating a future hope, a future day that is coming. That though he is about to be despised and rejected and betrayed and hated and persecuted and beaten and ruthlessly murdered, he knows that he will rise again on the third day. He knows he will be seated on his throne in heaven. He knows that he will rule and reign throughout all time. He knows that he's going to be soon returning back to earth. He knows that there is a future celebration that is coming. Remember what he said in Matthew 8, 11? I say to you that many will come from the east and the west, praise God for that, and will take their places at the feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. Revelation 19 says there's coming a future wedding feast when people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation, and we're gonna gather together to eat and we're gonna celebrate all that Jesus, our groom, our king, and our savior has done for us. So when we eat the bread and we drink the cup, we are looking forward because this is an appetizer. It's a foretaste of what is coming in the new kingdom. 
There's coming a day in which you and I are going to feast with all of the redeemed throughout the ages. And we're going to celebrate our Passover lamb, Jesus, the one at the head of the table, the one who made all of it possible. This Lord's Supper is a preparation. It's an anticipation. It's an appetizer of what is to come. So when we eat, we, with, we eat with expectation and anticipation and excitement, all because of what our Passover lamb did for us at the cross. So the Lord's Supper, we look inward, we look backward, we look forward. Fourthly, I want you to see that we look upward. Did you notice what Jesus and the disciples did after the meal? They sang. Jesus is hours away from suffering and crucifixion, and here he is, the one worthy of all worship. Verse 26, he's singing. He's worshiping God. He's giving glory to God. What did he sing? Well, traditionally, the Passover hymns would be sung, Psalms 113 through Psalm 118. Those psalms would be sung during the Passover meal. And here is Jesus singing a psalm about himself. Here is Jesus singing a psalm about what he's about to go and do. Grab hold of what is happening in this moment. He is singing about himself. These songs that have been sung for thousands of years, they're about him. The one who spoke the constellations into existence, the one who spoke dandelions and bunny rabbits into existence, the one who made the dolphins and the seas, and the one who spoke the world and the cosmos is singing because he knows what is coming. Yes, death is coming at the cross, but even more so, so is an empty tomb. And so when you prepare to face your affliction, when you go through trial, when death is staring you in the face, you sing. You belt out to the Lord who he is and what he has done and what he is about to do because he is the one who is faithful and true and he loves you and he is with you even to the end of the age. You sing with gusto to the one who has made a way through his shed blood at the cross. So Kenneth, what are you, what are you calling us to? What's your impact point? It's this, look unto Jesus and worship him. You can just imagine it. A sea of Israelites, over a million people walking out of Egypt, baking in the hot sun, marching as a mass caravan. And someone walks up to them and says, what's going on here? And someone responds, we were slaves. We were under the sentence of death. But we took refuge in the blood of a lamb. And now we're free. And we're headed to the promised land. Well, when unbelievers come and see us worship, they say, what's going on here? We say the same thing. We were slaves under the sentence of death. But we've taken refuge in the blood of a lamb. And now we're free. We're free from sin. We're free from the power of death. 
and we're marching to the promised land. We have a king who has prepared a place for us so that where he is, we might be also. And so that's where we're going. That's where we're headed. All because this king came like one of us. And he was marching up a hill. And someone took a whip faster. He's marching towards Calvary's cross faster. And he did it all for you. His blood was shed for you. You are loved and cared for by the sovereign king of the universe who knows your name. And he knows everything you've ever done and everything you've ever thought and everything you've ever said. And he still loves you. And he atones for your sin perfectly through his cross. He alone is worthy of your all. Let's look unto Jesus and worship.